It wasn't until two days later, as Kip and Liv came within sight of King Harudel's army, plopped over the plain and fouling the river like an enormous cow pie, that he realized how deeply, incredibly, brilliantly stupid his plan was. I'm going to march in there and rescue Karis? More like waddle in there. At the top of a small hill, they sat on the horse, which seemed grateful for the break, and scanned the mass of humanity before them. It was immense. Kip had never tried to estimate a crowd, and never seen one this large. Um, what do you think? Sixty or seventy thousand? More than a hundred, I'd guess. How are we going to find Karras and that? What did I expect? A sign, perhaps? Captured drafter here. Most of the camp was chaotic. People pitching lean-tos against wagons, those who had tents, screaming at each other over who got which spot, children running around, clogging the spaces between tents and wagons and livestock. The sky was still light, though the sun had gone down, and campfires were being started all over the plain. Men were swimming and bathing in the river, downstream of where some soldiers had hastily erected a corral. The animals dirtied the water, but no one seemed to care. Other men stood on the bank, urinating directly into the water. The color of the river upstream and downstream of the camp was distinctly different. People were carrying buckets of water everywhere, taken directly from the river. More importantly, the smell of meat cooking permeated the air. Kip's stomach complained. They'd gone through his food faster than he thought. Mostly he had gone through it faster, and now he had nothing. Well, except for that stick of dinars I stole with half a year's wages on it. Oh, that. We split up. You head directly for the center of the camp. I imagine that's where the king will have his tents. She's important, so they might be keeping her close. I'll go look for where the drafters are camping. A captured drafter will probably be watched by other drafters. She's got to be in one place or the other. We'll meet back here in, say, three hours. Kip nodded his acquiescence, impressed. He would have been lost on his own. And almost instantly, she slipped off the horse and was gone. No hesitation, no second guessing. Kip watched her go. He was hungry. Leading the big docile horse, tugging and pulling the beast as it tried to munch grass to the right and left, Kip approached one of the larger fires. Not one, but two javelinas were roasting on spits over the fire, and as Kip stared, swallowing, one of the fattest women he had ever seen sawed off a fully cooked leg with a few deft strokes at the joint. The smell was rich, succulent, savory, mouth-watering, lovely, astounding, mesmerizing, debilitating. Kip couldn't move until he saw her raise the meat to her lips. Uh, pardon me. <coughs> the fat lady sank her teeth into the greasy ham. She had at least three chins, her facial features disappearing into the fat that encased her, like an awkward child surrounded by a crowd of bullies. Her linen skirt could have served as a tent, literally. She turned away from Kip, slipping the knife back into a sheath, and putting her hand back to turning the spit. Her butt was more than a jiggly haunch. It was architecture. Uh, pardon me, I was wondering if I could buy some dinner? Uh, I've got money. Ears perked up all around the fire at that. Kip wondered suddenly if he'd picked a good fire to stop at. Were the men everywhere in the camp as scruffy as these ones? Kip looked around. Uh, yes, actually, they were. Oh shit. He fumbled with a leather money belt holding the stick of tin dinars. He'd grab the money belt because it already had money in it and would be easier to transport than loose coins. The stick was a great way to carry money. 
cut square to fit the square hole in the middle of dinars, and of uniform length, so people could rapidly count their own money. Scales were still used to count others' money, of course. It was convenient, and kept your money from jangling at every step as they did in a purse. Plus, the sticks could be bound in leather for attaching to a belt, or hiding inside of clothes, as Kip's was. He'd seen the gleam of this stick, and grabbed it. But as Kip pulled the open end of the money stick out, to pull off one tin dinar coin, he saw that something was very wrong. He froze. The weight had been right, or at least close enough that he hadn't thought about it. But the coin he pulled out wasn't tin. A dinar was about what a worker would make for a day's labor. An unskilled laborer, like his mother, would only make half a dinar a day. He'd assumed the stick he grabbed was full of the tin coins, each worth eight dinars. Instead, he'd grabbed a stick of silver quintars, slightly wider in circumference, but only half as thick, and the metal slightly lighter than tin, the silver coins were worth 20 dinars each. A stick of silver quintars held 50 of the coins, twice as many as the 25 tin coins that would fit on the same stick. So instead of stealing 200 dinars from the Travertine Palace, an already princely sum, Kip had stolen a thousand. And he just pulled out one right in front of everyone, making it clear he had more. In the dancing light of the fire, more than a few eyes gleamed like wolves. Kip tucked the rest of the money belt away, praying no one had seen how full it was. What did it matter? His life might be worth less than even the one silver quintar. I'll take the other leg. The fat woman let go of the spit and reached her hand out. I'll need 19 dinars back. A full day's wages should be more than three times what a javelina's leg cost. <laughs> we run a charity out here, we do. <laughs> Look like logs, yeah, Dad. Ten. Ten dinars for a meal? You can go hungry if you wanna. <laughs> you ain't gonna starve. The injustice of this whale calling him fat and the impossibility of doing much about it paralyzed Kip. He gritted his teeth, glaring around the fire, and handed over the quintar. The leviathan took the quintar and held it between her teeth, bending it slightly. If it were a counterfeit, tin coated with silver, it would give the curious crackling sound unique to bending tin. Satisfied between the weight and the texture that it was real, she tucked the coin away. She took a swig from a glass jug, set it down, and then sawed off a leg of the javelina. While she was working, Kip noticed that some of the men around the fire had disappeared. No doubt he was going to find them in the spreading darkness, waiting for him. Or Holem. They had seen the rest of the stick. Nor were the remaining men and women looking at him in a terribly friendly manner. They sat on their bags, on stumps, or on the ground, mostly watching him quietly. A few drank from wineskins or aleskins. A glassy-eyed woman was lying with her head in a long-haired, balding, unshaven man's lap, stroking his thigh. Both were staring at Kip. The whale handed Kip the javelina leg. Kip looked at her, waiting. She stared blandly back at him from beneath her layers of blubber. I need my ten dinars. <coughs> Do I look rich enough to have ten dinars? You can cut that dinar in half. She drew her knife and shrugged, stepping close to Kip. She reeked of grain alcohol. Sorry, got no knife. Fine. Kip turned as if to go, but instead grabbed her glass jug. I'd like to have a drink with dinner. You keep the rest for the great service. 
He smelled the jug. As he thought, it was grain alcohol. He took a swig to look tough and had to school his face to stillness when it set his mouth on fire. Then his throat. Then his stomach. The man who'd been shifting to get up settled back down. <coughs> Mind if I sleep here tonight? Of course, Jim. Sure. Kip wasn't nearly as hungry as he'd been a few minutes ago, but he forced himself to eat the greasy javelina leg. As the rest of the javelina cooked, the other men and women came and took slices. As Kip finished, he sucked his fingers and walked toward his horse. He got far enough that he began to hope that they would simply let him leave. What are you doing? I need to rub down my horse. It's been a long day. You don't need to go anywhere. And I don't want you near my horse. Your horse? That's right. The balding man bared blackened teeth at Kip. Not quite a smile, not quite like he was going to bite him, and drew a knife. <laughs> we'll be needing that coin belt, too. The women around the fire simply watched, impassive. No one moved to help. Several other men joined the two already facing Kip. Kip looked into the darkness, his vision spoiled by the fire, but still he could see several dark shapes waiting for him. Give them what you have, and maybe you'll escape with a beating, Kip. You know, you're not getting out of here with everything. Stall for time. Maybe there's some kind of uh, camp guards here who might save you. Evernight, take you! Kip smashed the top off the jug of grain alcohol on the edge of a wagon wheel. <laughs> Fool boy. Most people keep the handle if they do that, not smash it off. Kip lunged, splashing grain alcohol over the man. You, you know what? I'm gonna kill you for that. Kip charged. The man staggered backward and tripped right at the edge of the fire. For a moment, nothing happened. Then the grain alcohol in his hands ignited. Kip bolted straight past the flaming man. For a blessed moment, no one moved. Then someone dove for him, missing his body, but clipping his heel. Kip hadn't even gotten three paces from the fire. Oh, some run, Porky! He rolled over in time to see the flaming man run straight into the fat woman. She started whacking at him with her big knife. Then three men were on Kip, the fire behind them making them huge, grotesque shadows. A kick caught Kip in the shoulder, then one from the other side hit his kidney. Kip curled into a ball. Kip struggled to all fours. That opened his ribs to attack, and a kick hammered his side. Three grown men attacking a boy who'd done nothing to them. Something about the injustice of it tapped an iron reserve of will. No, not only three now, more had joined, but the additional numbers only infuriated Kip further. He hunched into his own bulk, gathering his strength, tucking his head between his shoulders. Burn in hell! I can take it! Kip shot to his feet, taking a wide stance. The suddenness of his movement seemed amplified by his previous slowness. Kip was like a cave bear suddenly standing on its hind legs. The eyes of the man in front of him went wide. Kip grabbed the man's shirt and pulled, hurling him into the fire. Someone hit him in the stomach. He found his attacker, a big bearded man, easily a foot taller than him, looking at him like he was stunned the boy hadn't fallen. 
Kip grabbed the man's beard and yanked it down toward him as hard as he could. At the same time, he lunged forward, his head like a ram. Something like hope glimmered through Kip's rage. He turned again, looking for another victim, just as something cracked across his head. Kip went down. He wasn't even aware of falling. He was just on the ground, staring up at another grinning ghoul of a man, carrying a piece of firewood in his hand. Behind that man were four others. Four? Still? Between the tears and the dizziness, Kip wasn't even sure he was counting right. He clambered to all fours again and promptly fell over. Spots exploding in front of his eyes. He had no balance. Throw him in a fire! <laughs> the next thing he knew, he was being lifted. One man taking each limb. He was face down. The heat of the fire beat at the top of his head and his face. The men stopped. All three! Uh, a holler is big. Uh, don't have to throw him far. <laughs> Got a scissor like bacon in the pan, ain't he? <laughs> One! <laughs> Kip swung a little over the fire, close enough that he swore his eyebrows curled from the heat. Two! <laughs> Kip swung farther over the fire, closing his eyes, welcoming the heat. His eyebrows and eyelashes melted. The fire licked his face like a cat. A guile wouldn't give up. They accepted you, Kip. Expected you to pull your weight. Gavin, Iron Fist, Liv, they let you belong for the first time in your life. And you're going to disappoint them? And like that, the fear was gone. No! They swung him back away from the fire. One last time, four men, four Ramirez, four of his mother treating him like shit and expecting him to take it. Hell no! fire deformed, leapt toward Kip, into Kip, and disappeared. The entire fire went out in an instant, plunging the camp into darkness. The men dropped Kip, and Kip barely noticed. He'd fallen among the embers. He caught himself with his left hand, and heard a sizzle as his hand closed around a burning faggot. And Kip barely noticed. Rage was a sea, and he merely floating in it. He wasn't himself, wasn't aware of a self. There were only those he hated who must be struck down. He threw a hand heavenward. Heat gushed out, becoming fire a foot away from his hand, painting the sky blue, yellow, orange, and red. He stood, heat roaring through his veins, unbearable heat. Despite the darkness, he could see the men who'd been holding him clearly. He saw their warmth. One had tripped and was staring at him open-mouthed. Kip flung a hand at him. The others fled. Kip threw his left hand toward one. He felt skin crack as he opened that hand, but the pain was a distant echo. He aimed with his right hand, too. Three fireballs, each the size of his hand, flew into the night almost pushing him back into the fire with the recoil. But each found its target, burying itself in a man's back, gutting him with fire. <laughs> Falling to his knees, still hot, so hot, so overwhelmed, Kip raised his hands once more. Fire poured into the sky from both hands, even his crippled left hand. 
Then, his vision returned to normal. It was like some demon had just released him, leaving him empty, hollow. Part of his humanity burnt away. The campfire was burning once more, much smaller. The heat of the coals slowly returning the wood to flame, illuminating the wagons and the faces of the fearful crowd gathering to see what had happened. In the light of the lanterns and torches and reawakening fire, Kip saw the scene with sane eyes. Scores of people were staring at him from a wide circle around the fire, all looking ready to bolt. There were bodies strewn about. The four men who tried to throw him in the fire were dead. One a charred, meaty skeleton. The others with holes the size of Kip's hand in their backs. Somehow the survivors were worse. The man Kip had doused with grain alcohol had skin sloughing off his face and chest and knife wounds all over his arms and body. The fat woman lay next to him. The flaming man must have run headfirst into her because her face was scorched, blistered on the right side, her eyebrow gone, her hair melted back halfway up her head, and somehow her own knife had been plunged to the hilt low into her right side. Blood dribbled down her cheek. The man Kip had flung into the fire was the worst, though. He'd caught the spit to stop himself, and only his head had dropped into the fire, falling directly onto the hottest coals. By some dark miracle, he was still alive and still conscious. He'd rolled over, exposing the burnt side of his head. His skin hadn't just sloughed off. It had stuck to the coals, like burnt chicken sticking to a pan. His cheekbone was exposed. His cheek burned through, exposing teeth now washed red with coursing blood. As he wept, his eye burnt a chalky white. The only one who might survive was the bearded man whose teeth Kip had smashed. He was unconscious, but so far as Kip could see, still alive. Kip tottered toward his horse, unfeeling. He didn't have a plan. He just had to get away. He was so ashamed. He got all the way to the beast before he saw the soldiers, but were staying back in the crowd. Kip looked at one of the soldiers who was mounted, an officer he guessed. I'm sorry, sir. We can't let you leave. One of the free will be along for you shortly. They attacked me! Tried to rob me! I... I didn't mean to... Kip leaned against his horse, exhausted, with his left hand. But even the thought of his own agony dragged his eyes back to the fire, to the people he'd killed, and those who weren't dead yet, but would be. His heart felt wooden, like he should feel more, but he just couldn't. Looking back, though, he saw a young man moving among the bodies, checking them. The young man, no, boy, for he couldn't have been more than 16 despite his splendid clothing, was pulling white fawnskin gloves off his hands. Large hooked nose, light brown skin, dark eyes, dark unruly hair. Over his white shirt, his forearms were covered with multicolored vambraces with five thick bands of color against a white background. His cloak echoed the pattern from a band outlined in black that looked fuzzy, sub-red, to red, to orange, to yellow, to green. There was no blue or superviolet. It didn't take a genius to guess. He was a polychrome. But that wasn't what arrested Kip's attention. Out of all the thousands of people in this camp, and out of the hundreds of drafters they must have, Kip recognized this one. He'd been part of the force that massacred Recton. He'd personally tried to kill Kip at the water market. Zyman, the boy's master had called him, 
Kip's heart plummeted like a child jumping off a waterfall. Zyman put on a pair of green spectacles. Hello, fire friend. Welcome to our war. I assume you've come to join the free? Right. Just so you know, you can kill who you must. Though Lord Omnichrome prefers it not to be so indiscriminate. But when you do, please clean up your messes. Simon swept his arms in a martial circle, slowly bending his knees, giving the impression of gathering energy. Then his hands snapped across each other, flashed out. Four spikes of green Luxon, each as long as a finger, shot out in two volleys. Around the fire, almost simultaneously, four heads burst open. The wounded. Zyman looked pleased with himself. He folded his green spectacles and tucked them in a pocket. He's showing off. He's showing off by killing people. What's your name? Kip. Kip, you have a tooth in your head. Actually, I have all my teeth in my head. No, not your tooth. Zyman gestured to his own scalp like he was being a mirror. Kip reached up, and sure enough, there was a tooth sticking in his scalp. Oh, what, what the hell? Oh, hmm. Maybe we'll take you by the Chiurgeons first and get you looked at. First? Yes, of course. Lord Omnichrome insists on meeting all of our drafters, even the sloppy ones. As darkness fell over the vast host, Liv wandered through campsites, becoming more and more aware that she was alone and female, surrounded by rough men. Lots of rough men. Men who were drinking too much, afraid of the coming battle. And if being Tyrian had made her an outcast and studiously ignored back at the Chromaria, here she had no such protection. Most of the men looked at her subtly enough that if she hadn't been so intensely aware of being alone and not wanting to be looked at, she would never have noticed it. Others stared at her so blatantly that she checked her neckline. Nope, it was quite modest. Just a few jackasses who've been away from their wives for too long. She was practically starving, and though she didn't want to stop at any campfire, it was the only way to get not only food, but information. Liv picked a campfire with some kind-looking farmers huddled around a pot of stew. She couldn't see everyone before she entered the circle, of course, but a few of them looked kind, and it was the best she could do. Good evening. I'd give half a dinar for some stew. You have any extra? Eight heads swiveled toward her. An older man smiled weakly. It's a mite thin to call it a stew. One rabbit, a couple of tubers, and the leavings of a javelina leg between nine mouths. But uh, Maury did find a grapefruit tree the soldiers missed somehow. Feeling reassured, Liv came closer. The man looked at her eyes and blinked. If you're getting hassled, you should put on your spectacles, young lady. Hassled? Why would you think that? And it's Liv, thank you. You look as skittish as a deer at a watering hole, that's why. He handed her a tin cup of broth with a few chunks. He waved off her attempt to pay him. She ate the thin stew and the small, underripe grapefruit they gave her, and mostly sat and watched. After a time, the men returned to their talk of war and weather and crops they hadn't bothered to plant this year, citrus trees they hadn't bothered to prune because if they bore more fruit, it only meant the bandits would spend longer close to their village. They weren't bad men. In fact, they seemed quite decent. They had their complaints about King Haradol, and one muttered darkly about a Lord Omnichrome before remembering that a drafter was present, but they reserved their hatred 
for their occupiers. The nuances of the rotating rule of Garriston were lost on them. They didn't differentiate between the better and worse occupiers. They hated them all. One had lost his daughter a number of years before, when a patrol had passed through their village and an officer had simply taken her. The farmer had gone to Garriston afterward to try to find her, but never did. The others had come partly for their friend, partly because they had nothing else to do and taking a city might drop a few coins into their hands, and partly because they hated the outlanders. And so men would die and kill for an offense ten years old, committed by some other country. There was no point reasoning with them, even if Livid cared to. Fools who could be our friends at some other time, her father had said. After she finished eating, she put on her yellow spectacles, drafted a few Luxon torches that would last for a few days to thank them for the soup and the fruit, asked directions to where the drafters were camped, and then headed out. No one bothered her on her way. The drafters' tents were separate from everyone else's, not because they were guarded or staked off, but evidently no one wanted to camp too close to them. Liv slipped her spectacles off, but kept them in hand, in case someone challenged her. She moved past a wagon surrounded by mirror men and painted all violet. Odd, but she didn't slow. She moved with purpose as if she had orders. She passed a number of fires with drafters being served a lavish dinner by cooks and wine or ales by a large number of slaves. The drafters all wear their colors on their wrists in either cloth or metal fan braces or in large bracelets for some of the women. The hem of their cloaks or dresses also echoed the color. Other than that, everyone wore his own style. In general, though, these drafters were much more interested in loudly proclaiming their colors in broad swaths across their clothes than was common at the Chromaria, where a woman might have a single green hairpin to let others know she was a green. They were a raucous, privileged group, but as Liv watched from the shadows, she saw that the men and women here often glanced to the south, not to the huge pavilion guarded by drafters and mirror men alike, that Liv assumed was King Haradal's residence, but to another set of bonfires. She grabbed a pitcher of wine from one of the slaves' tables and headed over. In the dark, her own apparel didn't look too different from the slaves. What she saw, beyond the forms of the slaves, took her breath away. People, or monsters shaped like people, were talking, drinking, cavorting, drafting. Nearest to live, a circle of blue drafters, half of them wearing blue spectacles and all filled with blue Luxon, tinting their skin in the firelight, were talking with a woman who seemed made of crystal. For long moments, they had no idea what she was seeing. They were drafters, though, obviously, and there was Luxon everywhere. Oathbreakers, the mad, the broken, color whites. Liv could barely take it in. These were people who'd violated everything Liv had been taught. She caught only fractured details. A broken haloed eye, the crystalline woman drafting a matrix in the air as the other blues listened. Greens dancing around one fire, bouncing on unnaturally springy legs. Jumping higher than any man Liv had ever seen, doing flips and backflips over each other. A man and a woman, skin permanently green but not yet transformed, were standing, holding each other, grinding their hips together, dancing in a manner so lascivious that... Wait, no. The woman's skirt was bunched around her waist. In full view of everyone, they were actually... Liv tore her eyes away, her cheeks suddenly hot. 
A yellow was tossing little Luxem balls into the air, while a blue shot blue bullets at them, each little target exploding in a flash of light when he connected. But Liv's eyes were drawn to the full color lights. Even here, there weren't many. She'd only heard rumors about such things at the Chromaria. They said almost everyone who broke their halo simply went mad and died, or went mad and killed others more often. That danger was what made the pact necessary. Orhola made magic to serve men, and a drafter swore to serve her community. Oathbreakers served only themselves, and they endangered everyone. But there were always the legends of those who remade themselves. Now here, Liv was seeing that they weren't wild tales. Now here, these drafters were teaching each other how to do it. Liv looked at the crystal blue woman. She was oddly beautiful. Crystal hair and diamond-shaped eye caps close over her eyes. Flawed crystal skin broken into a thousand facets, covering every natural curve of her body. She'd conquered the problem of how to deal with drafting hard, unbending blue luxum onto a body that had to be able to move and to bend by making thousands, tens of thousands of small crystals. Her body glimmered, shimmered, coruscated in the firelight as she shifted her upper body like a dancer to show her disciples what she'd done. Her laughter showed strangely white teeth against those gleaming blue lips. Then she shifted suddenly into a fighting stance spiky guards springing up along the edges of her forearms, and plates of blue luxum congealing over her skin to make armor. Shit! Uh, hey, Kayleen, I said wine! Liv turned and found herself face to face with a man with hideous burn scars all over his body. A sub-red, with the odd shimmering of fire crystal broken through his halos. He held out a glass to Liv, and she filled it with wine, trembling averting her own eyes until he looked away. The man held a haze pipe in one hand, and there were fresh burns all along his skin. As Liv looked, she realized that the burns were deliberate. He was trying to scar all of his skin deeply enough to lose feeling in it. Until then, he was deadening himself to the pain any way he could. It had to be incredibly dangerous to even be in close proximity to a mad fire drafter. He couldn't control himself normally, and now he was drunk and high on haze. The man had barely left when Liv saw a gout of flame blast into the night sky a few hundred yards away. She stopped, and so did a few of the color whites, nudging those around them and pointing. Whatever it had been, the drafter who'd done it had been powerful. That was a lot of fire to throw into the night. Where had he gotten the light to do that? From one of the bonfires? Then it happened again, fire painting the sky for several seconds. Liv felt her throat tighten with fear. Kip? No, that was ridiculous. Kip was green-blue. Fire, sub-red, was at the opposite end of the spectrum. It couldn't be Kip. <laughs> the color lights just laughed, as if it were one of their own out there having fun. Or Holman. Kip could be getting killed out there in the night. Liv needed to go. She turned and headed out of camp. She almost ran into a dozen mirrormen who were escorting a woman clad in a gorgeous black dress and wearing violet eye caps out of the King's Pavilion. Liv stopped. Curse. They bustled past, but Liv had no doubt where they were going. 
Karras was being held in that odd violet wagon she'd seen, held captive. Liv should have figured it out earlier. Still, any elation Liv had felt about finding Karras, actually finding her on the first day in a camp of maybe a hundred thousand souls, if not more, was quashed by her fear for Kip. When she got out of the drafter's area, she put on her yellow spectacles. No one bothered her. She arrived at the place she and Kip had agreed to meet, just in time, but he wasn't there. He never came. The next day, she learned that a heavy boy with Tyrian skin and blue eyes had been attacked and had killed five men, or 10 or 20, or five women too, depending on the rumor, and then thrown fire into the air. He'd been taken away by drafters and mirror men. Despite the impossibilities, Kip couldn't draft sub-red. Liv's intuition confirmed it. It had been Kip. She was sure. Someone had drafted fire, someone else had killed those people, and Kip had been taken. She searched for him for two days. She found nothing. As the sun dragged its feet toward the horizon, Gavin gave the signal, and the Teamsters' whips cracked. The draft horses surged forward. Their leads drew taut, and the ropes connected to the great yellow Luxon supports strained for a moment. Then the supports fell. Gavin quickly moved to inspect, that everything had gone according to plan. One league out! Corvin was standing on top of the wall, looking out toward King Haradol's vast army. Shit! Here, Lord Prism! Gavin hurried over. The last of many big problems he'd run into in crafting a wall almost entirely of yellow Luxon was that all the Luxon had to be sealed. The seal was always the weakest point. If you could melt through that one area, no mean feat, but still, the whole structure would unravel. That his wall was made in sections just meant that each section had multiple seals. If any section failed, it would be catastrophic. An entire section of wall, 50 paces across, would splash into liquid light in moments. It was probably the reason no one before Gavin had been idiot enough to make an entire wall of yellow Luxon. The solution had been simplicity itself. Two layers of Luxon, each protecting the other, the seals to the inside. That part was common enough among drafters, but the seal was always the last thing you touched. So you couldn't really tuck it inside, not on something as big as a wall. You could protect one seal by covering it with more Luxon and sealing that, but one seal would always be external. Most drafters would have covered the seal and covered that seal and covered that one and left it at that. It wasn't good enough for Gavin. He'd built the entire second layer of the wall up on supports, then he built each side, sealing them on the inside. When the draft horses pulled out the supports and the second layer of wall fell into place, it left a structure where the seals, for the first time that Gavin had ever heard of, were truly protected, not just by yellow Luxon, but by the vast weight of the wall itself. And as each section locked to the next, it became more and more difficult for anyone to ever lift the wall to access the seals. Gavin was building something monumental, something pure, and it felt great. This edifice would stand long after he was dead. There weren't many men who could claim the same. The locals were already calling it Brightwater Wall. Hurrying over to the engineer who'd called out, Gavin found that one of the supports hadn't been pulled all the way free. The wall had dropped on it, 
pounding the two-pace white support almost halfway into the earth and keeping the wall from fitting the next section perfectly. Three minutes until our artillery will be in place! Son of a bitch! Gavin dropped on his knees next to the broad yellow support and brushed dirt away hurriedly. The support, unlike the wall sections, was sealed right at the surface for just this eventuality. Right there! Gavin sent some subred into the seal and the entire support dissolved. The yellow Luxon abruptly liquid. Gavin had made the tolerances too tight. He should have made those joints able to hook together even if they weren't so well aligned. The tight joints gave the wall more strength and would keep soldiers inside dry even during rainstorms, but still. Taking his attention off the wall for the first time in hours, it felt like days, though it was only early evening. He looked to the people assembled. There were thousands assembled. Most of the people of Garriston wanted to see the wall being built. Vendors had set up their wagons and stalls. Soldiers kept avenues clear and began ferrying gear and powder and ropes and shot for cannons and firewood for furnaces and additional armor and arrows and muskets. Others operated the cranes as soon as the second layer settled in place. Drafters were pouring through the inside of the wall, sealing any cracks, looking for flaws that they could fix or larger ones that needed Gavin's hand. The blackguards, nearly a hundred of them, also stood nearby. They'd told everyone to leave already, but they didn't have the men to spare to enforce the order. The people were too curious, but they knew they'd never see anything like this again in their lives. Gavin couldn't worry about them right now. He was already feeling the tightness of impossibility squeezing his chest. Captain, you've seen the process. Get the teamsters moving as fast as they can. We've got 16 more sections. Send half the teams all the way up to the east side and half work from here out. Take six drafters. You, four, you, and you. You've seen what I've done. Go do it. General Danavis, talk to me. Less than a league, you know. It should be enough. Gavin moved to the inside of the great arch that would hold the gate. There were open holes, tubes running down the great curving length of the wall. Gavin filled himself with life and blasted Green Luxon down each tube. It would give the wall some flex, but also strength to recoil from any battering ram blow. He sealed each Green Luxon tube at the end. Lord Prism, it looks like they have teams pushing their artillery out in front of the army. They know we don't have the skirmishers to go out and smash them. Damn spies! I can't see the culverins, but we know they have half a dozen. If they fire from greatest random... Corvin paused, doing mental calculations. Greatest random was literally the greatest distance gunners could reach, but at almost 2,000 paces for the biggest culverins, there was no such thing as aiming. They could begin their bombardment any time now, if their crews are practiced. Within minutes, even if they're not. It wasn't the culverins Gavin was worried about. Because of the trajectory of those big guns, their shots would hit the front of the wall. Brightwater Wall could take as many direct hits as they wanted to give it. They would have to come substantially closer for the higher trajectory howitzers, and closer still for the mortars that would absolutely wreak havoc on those stubborn crowds behind the wall. Garrison's guns would have to knock out those guns before they could be placed, bagged, and loaded. Damn it! Find someone who's not doing something more important and get these damn people back! This isn't a Sunday outing! Shells are going to be landing where they sit in ten minutes! Start firing as soon as you can! Buy me time, General! The next section of wall fell into place. People were rushing everywhere, 
but he pushed it out of his mind and confronted the new biggest problem of all. Now that the wall was actually taking shape, he hadn't built the gate. He ran over to one of the cranes hoisting supplies to the top of the wall. It was already lifting off the ground as he approached, rising fast. Gavin jumped, throwing out two hooks of blue and green Luxon, snagging the sides of the load. He rose fast and pulled himself up. He jumped off as soon as the load settled on top of the wall, startling the soldiers operating the crane. They froze. Gavin ran across the top of the wall, dodging men to get back to the arch above the gap where he needed to draft the gate. You men! Get up there and protect the prism! Tremblefist sent up a small number of blackguards to stand with Gavin, as if they could do anything to protect him from incoming shells, but not so many that they would get in the way of the defenders trying to set up the wall for any of a hundred tasks. The rest of the blackguards took up positions in front of the empty gate. As in all battles, there was simply too much to see, too much happening all at the same time to put everything together. Gavin looked toward the sun, poised above the horizon. Two hours. All I need is two hours. Protecting these people is one great purpose that I have that you must approve of. So if you're up there, would you please get off your holy ass and help me? General Danibus had been organizing, training, promoting, firing, and training even more of Garrison's defenders for the past week. 20 hours a day, sometimes 22. It was inhuman, and yet it wasn't enough. Gavin was accustomed to the discipline and ease of working with veterans. By the end of the PRISM's war, his men had worked together fluidly. Stocking this wall with supplies would have taken his veterans literally one-third of the time it was taking these men. His veteran cannoneers would already be sighted in, with distances marked off. These men barely knew each other, much less trusted each other. It made everything painfully slow. And Gavin was slow to adjust to how slow they were. We're doomed. But then he drafted a quick platform to walk out on in front of the open arch, necessary to gather some of his open threads of Luxon, and he caught his first sight of the wall as his enemies would see it. That damned boy artist had made his masterpiece. Gavin had been the one who filled the forms, but he'd always been hovering above them, and while he was getting the sections to fit together, he'd always been on the other side of the wall. Now he saw the whole. The entire wall, the entire great curving league of it, glow the color of the sun when it first shows its face. That glow came from the liquid yellow, a hair's breadth from being perfect hard yellow, that floated behind the first layer of perfect yellow. The liquid yellow would mend any damage that did scar the outer wall. But then, within that thin layer, Gavin saw that his old drafters, doubtless under the direction of a Hyatt, had added their own touches. As an enemy approached, he would see that the entire wall was swarming with loathsome things. Spiders the size of a man's head appeared to be crawling across the wall, stopping, little jaws clacking. Small dragons appeared to swoop and spin. Disapproving faces swirled up out of the gloom. A woman ran from some many fanged thing and was torn to pieces and devoured alive, her face painted with despair. A man who appeared to be walking along the base of the wall was seized by hands that swirled out of the mist and yanked him in. Beautiful women turned into monsters with forked tongues and huge claws. Blood seeped and pooled on the ground. And those were just the things Gavin could see in a cursory glance. It was as if the drafters had gotten together and taken every nightmare any of them had ever had and put it into the wall. 
They were illusions, all of them mere images within the wall, but an enemy wouldn't know that at first, and even if they did know it, it was scary as the Evernight itself. Better, it would certainly distract enemy archers and musketeers from making accurate shots at the murder holes hidden by those images. And that was just the wide blank sections of the wall. At every corbel, a scowling, forbidding figure of a prism looked down on the attackers. As Gavin looked, he saw that every prism for the past 400 years had been crafted into the wall. With Lucidonius at the right hand of the figure who dominated all, and Gavin himself at the left hand. Above them, over the huge gate gap, loomed the scowling figure of Orholim himself, radiant and furious, his planted arms making the arches of the gate. Anyone attacking this gate would be attacking Orholim himself and all his prisms. A brilliant little trick to make the attackers feel uneasy. Each figure, including Orholim, had cunningly hidden machicolations to drop stones or fire or magic on attackers. For a moment, Gavin thought of simply closing the gate gap, just making pure wall, but at this point, that wouldn't be any faster. The forms were already shaped to make a gate. All he had to do was fill them and tie them. Just on one side, the cleverness he'd use for the rest of the wall would have to wait. Tomorrow, if they lived that long. Gavin gathered the spools of superviolet that connected the whole superstructure of the wall and began pouring in yellow luxon. Oh, Holm, he was exhausted. He'd been drafting to his absolute limit every day for the last five days, and all through this day in particular since the first rays of dawn. Nonetheless, he poured perfect yellow luxon into the forms. The real Gavin couldn't have done this. He wasn't a super chromat. He couldn't draft a perfect yellow. But this Gavin couldn't go halfway. There was no good enough with yellow Luxon. If it weren't drafted perfectly, it would dissolve. Simple as that. Gavin almost fell from his perch. Someone steadied him, and he saw that Tremblefist was standing beside him, holding him up. I've got you. He wasn't quite as big as his older brother, but he too had worked with Gavin a long time. He must have seen the glazed, stupefied look in Gavin's eyes. Our own cannons will start in a moment. Don't be distracted. Don't be alarmed, he meant. Don't be frightened. Don't botch the gate and get us all killed. More of King Hardo's artillery began landing in the field, most of it far short of Brightwater Wall. Gavin gathered his will and kept drafting. He didn't realize that he was weaving on his feet until he felt Tremblefist's big hands close on his shoulders. Several other blackguards pressed close. Raise the call! As Yellow Luxon splashed from Gavin's hands into the forms below him, he felt the wall shudder as each section of the cowl swung into place on counterweights. The cowl was his architect's invention. Basically, it was a removable roof for use during artillery bombardment. The wall's own artillery was left free to fire, on the same basic defensive design as an arrow slit. Easy to fire out at a wide angle, but requiring a direct hit from the other side to put it out of commission. What the hell is that? Gavin looked up, giving himself a small break, and looked over the plain. The army was rumbling ever closer, catching up with their culverins. In front of them were teams setting up the howitzers. The defenders still hadn't fired a single shot. But that wasn't what had Tremblefist cursing. In front of the main army, drawing even with the advanced cannon emplacements, 
were more than a hundred men and women, some riding and some simply running. All were dressed in brightly colored clothing. Gavin could tell that by the way the Greens moved, sprinting with huge, bouncing, league-devouring strides, but they weren't just drafters. They were color whites, and they were headed straight for the gate. They would be at the wall within four minutes at the most. Four minutes. Gavin looked at his half-formed gate. If he didn't worry about hinges, if he just sealed the damn thing to the wall itself, it was possible. Maybe. He looked up at the sun, gathering power. It was less than an hour until sunset. The festivities for Sunday's Eve would start as soon as the last ray of sun disappeared from the horizon. Whether the attackers were heretics or pagans or faithful, they wouldn't fight during Sunday. Sunday was holy, even to the gods Lucidonius had driven out. If they could hold off the attackers for that one hour, they had a chance. And Sunday would give them the time they needed to reinforce the gates and get supplies and guns in place. One day, one hour, four minutes that would determine the course of this war. It came down to this. Gavin was not going to quit. He had four minutes left in him. The Cobrans on the wall finally answered those out in the field, not even close to the field artillery emplacements or the charging color whites. And more of King Haradol's shots were hitting the wall itself, each rebounding off the yellow Luxon with a splay of yellow light as the wall absorbed the blow and healed itself. The forms Gavin was filling with Luxon were three-quarters full, washing him in the invigorating scent so close to mint and eucalyptus. But he was tiring anyway. He looked out to the color whites. Not even two minutes left. Oh, Holum, I'm trying to do something good here. Great purpose, or oh, Holum, selfless and all that. You want people to be selfless, right? Troops to the gates! Form ranks behind the wall! The crowd was beginning to scatter. Flashes of magic bloomed in front of him. The color whites had spotted him. They were throwing missiles and fire and everything they could think of, but his blackguards were deflecting it all. Gavin kept drafting. The color whites were only 200 paces out now, running at a full sprint. He had only seconds left. A cannon roared to Gavin's right and tore through a dozen of the color whites, shredding them. But the color whites behind them leapt through the blood and smoke and flying limbs, faces snarling, inhuman, glowing. Drafting the last of the yellow Luxon to fill the last form, Gavin pulled the threads together in his hand. He was going to make it. He was sealing the Luxon when a cannonball smashed into the forms. All the force of the impossibly lucky shot went straight into Gavin's hands. It was like holding a rope and having someone drop an anvil tied to the other side. The Luxon was yanked out of Gavin's hands instantaneously. Gate and cannonball slammed into the ground beneath the arch, the cannonball blasting through blackguards and a dozen still gawking civilians behind them. The gate, abruptly unheld, unsealed yellow Luxon, hissed and seethed into light before Gavin could stop it. In two seconds, the gate flash-boiled into nothingness and disappeared. And so did Garrison's hope. Gavin collapsed. Or he would have if two blackguards hadn't caught him and dragged him away from the brink. He wanted to fight them, to stand up. But he was so lightheaded he couldn't even make words. The first clash was right below his perch. He felt it. 
was brought here two hours ago! General Danavis was standing ten paces from Gavin, looking through the murder holes and machicolations at the battle beneath the arch of the gate. His soldiers were blinking at him. Out of twenty men, only two had muskets. Ah, damn you! You and you, go find muskets! Now! The blackguards pulled Gavin to the edge of the wall. The cowl on the wall meant there were only a few places open on either the front or the back. They found one where the cranes pulled in goods. A blackguard bikram drafted a blue-green slide all the way to the ground. What are you doing? We're taking you to safety, sir! Then the man jumped onto the slide. Gavin was looking through the bright hallway formed by the bonnet to one of the Culverin teams. They had fired a ball and were looking downfield, the sign of an inexperienced crew. Only one man needed to watch so they could adjust their aim. The rest should be reloading already. Oh, ha, ha. Got it! Ha, ha. Got it! Gavin couldn't see what they'd hit, but as they turned back to their task, he saw a flash of movement. Green claws latched onto the wall just in front of the artillery team. What? Gavin had known green whites to infuse their legs with the springiness of green Luxon, but he'd never seen one jump even half the height of this wall. He pointed, but not before the beast flung itself upon the artillerymen. Its hands, grown into huge claws, tore through four men before they even knew it was there. The blackguards hesitated for only half a second. None of them had ever seen a color white either. Four blackguards stepped forward, almost simultaneously. The two in front went to one knee, clearing firing lanes over their heads. Their hands dipped in unison, one hand coming up to draft, the other coming up with a pistol. A ball of blue luxon like a fist hammered the green-white toward a wall. A glob of red luxon splattered across its side and back and made it stick to the wall. All three bullets hit the green-white's chest. Green luxon and all too human red blood burst from the wounds. The white would have collapsed, but the red luxon held it to the wall, even as it burned. Look out! One of the blackguards stepped forward, already pouring more powder in her flashpan. Apparently hers had been the gun that misfired. She cocked the gun, aimed, and pulled the trigger. It blew the green-white's head apart. The blackguards were already reloading their pistols. For most of them, Gavin knew. It was their very first battle, first blood. Yet each reloaded his or her pistol without looking. It was something they were taught to do only when there was extreme and pressing danger. Visually inspecting a pistol was usually a good idea to prevent misfires and double charging, but it was worth it to not have to take your eyes off the battlefield sometimes. And all of them had the presence of mind to do it correctly. Tell General Danavis to withdraw the cowl. The cowl was keeping the green-whites from getting in anywhere except at the artillery stations, but it left those men totally vulnerable. And while the blackguards had all hit their target, now slumped on the floor, bleeding out and barely smoking, the other defenders wouldn't be so accurate. The cowl transformed the top of the wall into a yellow Luxon tunnel. That meant ricochets. Ricochets meant anyone who missed a shot at an attacker would probably kill a defender. It wasn't worth the trade-offs, especially because King Hardel's culverins and howitzers had stopped firing so they wouldn't kill the color whites. General Danavis must have realized the same thing, though, because before the blackguards could argue that they couldn't send even one of their own away from Gavin, the cowl slid back. The sudden motion knocked several defenders off the wall, the fall guaranteeing maiming or death. 
but it had to be done. It also snapped the slide that the Blackguards had made for Gavin, but in moments they remade it and threw him unceremoniously down. He couldn't even catch himself. The sheer amount of Luxon he drafted today had left him with nothing. The Blackguards at the bottom caught and lifted him. He was able to stand. Take me to the gate. The Blackguards looked at each other. Damn you! Lose the gate, lose the wall! We lose the wall, we lose the city! This city isn't our concern! Your safety is! Tremblefist had appeared from nowhere. You can stand? Can you run? I'm not running! We can't hold the gate! My guards are getting slaughtered! And for what? We're not your personal army! We protect your life, not your whims! You're making our job impossible! Gavin's failure spun out before him. This was his own fault. It wasn't his drafting that had failed, it was his leadership. He'd never told these men and women why they fought. He demanded obedience unto death without even telling them why it was important. He'd been divided in his own mind, and now he was surprised that they didn't want to die for that? A lie would have been better. All he could see through the press of the soldiers between himself and the gate was flashes of fire and smoke and blood splashed high against the arch. The Blackguards were doubtless still in the front line. Only the Blackguard could have stood for so long against the number of color whites Gavin had seen coming. The soldiers between Gavin and the fight had no idea about establishing fire lanes, so men farther back didn't shoot for fear of striking those in front of them. But so far, no one was turning back. Of course, that would change when they saw their best fighters retreat, abandon them. The Blackguards were the linchpin. Gavin grabbed a nearby soldier's musket and ran toward the gate. Damn it! Stop him! Gavin pushed and weaved through the crowd, his size slowing him, but not as much as Tremblefist's even bigger size. The search from the gate pushed everyone back a good five paces. Gavin cut across a line of soldiers to the wall. He touched a few sections until he found the one he was looking for. He touched it. Anyone could touch it. It activated from the heat in a man's hand and a little window of the wall went transparent. He was right. The crunch had been the impact of the regular soldiers arriving. There were tens of thousands of them pressed against the wall right now, already hefting scaling ladders and ropes. He couldn't wait for them to find his little surprise. But none of that mattered if they couldn't hold the gate. Looking to the sun, Kevin saw that it was touching the horizon. Not long now, if they could make it until the sun had fully set, the drafter's power would be more than halved. They could still draft from diffracted light, but not nearly as strongly. Gavin started running again, pushing through men and women directly against the wall. Gavin dropped to the ground and covered his head with his arms. Something heavy crushed him farther into the ground, and the world outside went blue. Tremblefist rolled off Gavin and dissolved the blue shield he drafted over them both. Gavin stared at the cannon shell, embedded in the earth, not ten paces away. It hadn't exploded. It hadn't even crushed anyone. And it landed right between two lines of soldiers. One man was dancing around, shaking his hand. His crushed musket lay beneath the mortar itself, knocked out of his hand by the shell. It was right about where Gavin had been before he cut toward the wall. Poor Holum's hand is on you indeed, you damn fool prison.